Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. In this podcast, playwright Michael West talks to actor and collaborator Louis Lovett about revisiting Corn Exchange's Dublin by Lamplight after over 10 years. They talk of making the piece, back then and now, the physical theatre style involved and the importance of burying technique. Louis talks about the physical pitch of theatre Lovett's work, of audience engagement, of thriving on mistakes and the joyful sense of play. Enjoy this podcast. Hi there. Thanks for listening. Uh, This is Michael West, playwright, and I'm the writer of Dublin by Lamplight, a show that is in rehearsal currently in the Abbey. And I have the great pleasure of talking to actor extraordinaire Louis Lovett, who, in addition to being a fabulous performer, is also something of uh, an anchor tenant on this project, Dublin by Lamplight, having been involved in the devising, the development, the rehearsals, the first production the tour and now this revival 10 years later so Louis may I begin by asking you what it's like physically to come back to a show after 10 years since that was the last time you played Willie Hayes physically returning you can look at different aspects of the the physical return a what's your old fitness level like 10 years later 10 years older Mm. then there's the um, the muscle memory of the role the blocking the movements the reactions uh, it is a very the commedia style uh, as uh, exemplified by Annie Ryan and yourself in the Corn Exchange it is what you would call a physical theatre style now, now what physical theatre is not is forward cartwheels and uh, miming everything it's much more than that isn't it Michael so if I take a reaction to something that another character said to me I might try to engage my body physically and I what I love about the Commedia is it's a heightened type of theatre so there's an exaggeration but it's an exaggeration that comes from one hopes a true state Mm. and Annie often talks about the states of happiness sadness fear and anger and those four states we try to bring throughout the whole story so at any moment we're engaging one of those states and then you try to heighten that state and let it ooze through your entire body uh, just asking about your body and stuff for that as 10 years a performer 10 years old I mean do you feel a great sense of admiration for your younger self for the physical uh, demands <laughs> Uh, no, I feel actually the, the critical thing that has happened in the interim period is that I have had a number of one man shows under my belt mm-hmm. and uh, the work that I make myself with uh, Moirin Ahern and Theatre Love It means that I have these uh, very heightened theatrical uh, one person shows. Uh, so I've. I have performed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times since then by myself on stage in hour length, highly physical shows. So in that uh, regard, my stamina is far superior to what it was 10 years ago. So this is actually like it's it's great. I can be doing a scene in rehearsals here in Dublin by Lamplight and I'm reaching a physical pitch and then I leave the stage while other actors continue the scene. In the one-man show, you're at the same pitch and you, and you cannot leave the stage yeah. and you continue that pitch for one hour. So 
this is it's 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 fantastic to have had that experience under mm. the belt so it really does mean uh the stamina levels are not an issue uh, how do you feel, I mean, stamina, that's interesting, uh, obviously, at a, at a physical level, but there's also then just sort of noose, you might call it, or just technical know-how that you're smarter having done all those performances. I mean, you know that, as you say, as we were talking about there, it's not about overexpending energy, it's about efficiencies and... Yeah, it's about relaxing on stage. And the older uh, one gets, y- you try to develop that ability to relax while perhaps portraying a very heightened tension or a, a very oh, you know a full-on um, kind of you know d- display of fear or shock mm. or hatred but what what you try to learn as you go along long is to keep, keep breathing yeah and a mistake I would have made many years ago is holding my breath maybe if I was right. Why I oughta and actually hold my breath. Now I'll go why I oughta and I'll keep the breath yeah. going underneath and here's where the physicality comes in. You give the physical picture of tension, but the breath continues working away as calm as you can. And there's a lovely dichotomy there of uh, the the picture you're making to the mm-hmm. audience and what's going on on the inside. It's like the old, I'm not comparing myself to a swan now, but it is the thing of trying to have that, the, the, the performance up above the water level and then down below the engine room still going yeah. along, nice steady, steady beat that doesn't get caught up with the, um, the, um, the, the, yeah, so the, the, the energy, the energy can the, be wasted the, by getting locked. Of your stuff. character's yeah. energy. Yeah. That the performer's energy is separated from the character's energy. Right. So that I'm not getting enraged, yeah. as enraged as my character. Right. That's uh, the other sort of leg of that triangle, as it were, then, of course, is the audience engagement. Because one of the hallmarks of your style in particular is your use of the audience, your connection with an audience. And uh, and the piece was built largely around that awareness in you as a, as a performer. Now, of course, all actors are aware of an audience to some degree, but but you're very particularly collaborating with an audience as it happens. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that in terms of either Commedia or your own work, uh, your awareness of, of the people in there looking at you? It's tentacles on an octopus. You're giving it to your fellow actor. You're giving it the, the joy of the play that you're having yourself. You're giving it to the musician. If there's a musician involved, you're giving it to the audience. It's just going out. Yeah, It's going out there. I mean, it's particularly relevant in terms of something like comedy, which has a lot of direct audience address. I mean, the convention is the, the actors are looking out at the audience and looking into the soul of the characters that they're talking to or indeed into their own uh, dark little hearts. But um, but as I only brought it up because, uh, as I say, the in the making of the piece, we were very aware of your particular skills and your ability to channel your talents into the comedia style and to make it disappear so that it doesn't look like you're doing another type of performance style. I mean, the, the sort of the analogies to something like Dumbledore Lambert or vaudeville or comedia and stuff, but they're really just words for look at this person performing and giving us. Yeah, and w- w- what you want to do with any technique is you want to bury it. Mm. You want to hide it. Uh, That's it. You want to, you want to learn it 
I just saw I was walking on lunch today. I was coming back and I saw a, a young woman with a, an item of clothing that said, there are no rules, there are no rules, there are no rules, there are no rules on these four patches across um. her back like like a punk might have worn. And and I, I just, you know, I, ju- I just so disagree with that utterly. <laughs> there are rules and you learn the rules, and then you break the rules, mm-hmm. and then you invent new rules. Yeah. But for me, rules are really important, especially in an ensemble mm-hmm. uh, that the cast know the rules yeah. before we can start. So in order to break them. Yeah. But again, there is a tendency to break rules that you ne- haven't even learned. Yeah. Well, of course, another, another word for, for rules is, is game uh, games. You know, the, the, you're trying to find out what the game is in this scene or in this world. Uh, and it's the playfulness element of it, the game only works if everyone is aware of those rules that yeah. this is what a, a mimed object looks like and this is what a sound effect is and stuff in those kind of conventions I, I take my old uh, you know, I do, I'm a bit of a I do, I, I, I'd get quite boring now if I went off on my <laughs> slavery to technique mm. I am just all about it but uh, and then I'm all about hiding it and uh, but I suppose going back to my I suppose engagement with an audience, it, a huge part of that would be down to the the work I've done making theatre for for younger audiences yeah. and for children, whereby that engagement with the audience lends itself towards making sure that your audience are going with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so this you know looking at your audience, hearing them, seeing them, is integral to good theatre for, for young people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I wouldn't dream of doing a piece of theatre for young audiences that fails to take into account the audience. Yeah. Because they'll drift, uh, like any audience drifts. Audiences drift, but adults have the stiff ramrod of convention down their shirt back yeah. so they'll might drift they'll tolerate. Them. they'll tolerate and they'll say you're you know what I would rather leave this performance but I won't because of convention uh, now children won't leave either because their elders are won't let them either um, but they will shift to a greater extent um, and create an, an ambient noise of um mm. Uh, a meta noise that infiltrates the air. So, hmm. yeah, I, I would have developed a keen sense of regarding my audience from the amount of work I've done yeah. with children. And I, do you know what? I think I, I'm often thinking about, I remember my days as uh, making street performance. Yeah. Uh, and what what great training it is again to try to hold a moving audience an audience that are not confined by the walls who haven't they owe us nothing they haven't paid to be here they're actually not here they're going somewhere else they didn't expect this and you want to hold them that creates one must have a dynamism and an energy and an engaged focused energy that a moving audience a moving target that you, you have seconds to ping the energy behind whatever story it is you're doing on the street and hold them and then once you've got them it, it's that it, it. I suppose it, it, I, I like to talk about muscles as well mm-hmm. not physical muscles but 
energy muscles and uh, the muscle of holding one's attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, I suppose it's energy and uh, developing your energy muscle with the moving audience and then with the audience of 158 year olds and holding an audience of, uh, you know, 150, 300, 500, eight year olds. That really does something for your stamina. Yeah. And for your stamina to hold the attention of 300 12 year olds in East London, which I had the pleasure of doing a couple of years ago for two weeks, mm. playing to 300 children twice a day for two weeks on a, in a one man show. And what was that show? That was the girl who forgot to sing badly. Okay, great. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 you, you just come away from that with a certain muscle. Yeah. Well, what's fabulous about that is that there's no way you can lie to yourself about whether that's working or not. You're either getting them or you're either you know, yeah. being heard or you're not. It's, there's no average yeah. in that one. Since we're talking about that sort of technique element, could I ask you a little bit more about um, either your appreciation of technique or your development of that technique? Could you describe a little bit how that happened? I mean, when did you first notice or appreciate or see that? And what steps did you take to acquire it? I stumbled into theatre, really. I never wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a musician. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a rock star in a band. And I moved to Dublin from Cork for that reason, to join a, a fellow Cork man, Mark Wilkins, a great musician from Cork, join him in a band in Dublin. And we lasted for a year. What were you called? Uh, we never never had a name. Untitled. We never played a gig. Untitled. We just rehearsed. Okay. We just rehearsed, never played. And uh, in that during that year, I my brother Connor Lovett came back from Paris, where he had been st a student at the Ecole Jacques Lecoq, and Connor got a job on a on a with a company called Down to Earth Theatre Company, oh, yeah. who were a force funded company, and they had a they had a theatre and education company, they had a street theatre company. They're the people I worked with. But then they set up an acting school, an acting academy on Middle Abbey Street. And Connor got a job teaching. And he said to me, Louis, um, why don't you audition for this new school? And I said, I don't want to be an actor. But he cajoled me and uh, the false aspect of it was attractive. Mm -hmm. They paid you. Right. And um, so I went along and anyway, I joined this down to earth theatre companies, their acting school. And I was very lucky there. Uh, Connor was teaching all these Lecoq uh, technique that he was f full of and uh, very <laughs> fresh in his memory. And he was a good teacher. And so immediately I was being introduced to technique. Mm. And uh, and Lecoq, can you describe a little bit about that for people who mightn't have heard of it? I mean, it's so the Ecole Jacques Lecoq is the Jack, the school of Jacques Lecoq, who was a very, very uh, well-respected uh, Frenchman who developed his own method of teaching um, theatre practice and theatre technique for actors and uh uh, ultimately designers and directors and what have you um, he would be known again as a teacher of I, I almost don't want to say it physical theatre and what's the centre of, of his premise you know in a, in a nutshell then 
I couldn't tell you. But would you call it clown or physical theatre? It, it's he he deals with things like clown. He so he does programs. He does modules. Mm-hmm. Uh, clown would be one. Uh, Buffon, uh, melodrama, uh, Greek tragedy, and he'd approach all of these. Um, uh, he he starts off his year with le jeu, which is French for the game. And so it's a whole three, four weeks spent on developing your own sense of play. Mm-hmm. How to play when, when you step up on stage and you're invited to, as we were with Dublin by Lamplight, let's make a show. Yeah. And uh, so we were going to devise, you're stepping up there. My whole principle behind, I suppose, the way I act is, is based on the child at play. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the child in the back garden, in the playground, up in their bedroom... Maybe they're by themselves. Maybe they've got the big cardboard box in the corner and this box becomes their car or their spaceship or it becomes their kitchen. If you had a little eye into their play space, they didn't know you were there and you watched them play with this object are you? and you watched them reach down to their side and pick up a something that you can't see because it's actually invisible but they know it's a it's a trophy from planet Zordor awarded to you when you successfully imprison 20 aliens in the and they're holding this thing that we can't see in the and if if you spend time watching which I I, I don't <laughs> but I did you see we all we all did this we all, this. Did we yeah, all played we all had this ability yeah so I want to take that sense of the wonder and the concentration and the focus that the child has at play. So play doesn't mean getting up and having one of my, a term I'm not a great fan of, is having the crack. It's not about just having the crack. Or doing mad things. Yeah, or let's do something mad. And it's about having a focused, concentrated, dedicated time given to playing in order to create a piece of theatre for an audience. And again, it's that child at play. There's nothing, there's nothing mad about what they're doing. Mm. It's focused and their imaginations are one hopes relatively unfettered and they can go places. That's what underlies my kind of practice. Yeah. It's the child at play. When I make work for children with uh, Theatre Love It, uh, which I run with Myrna Hearn, we want to give the children in the audience almost, guys, look, there's this guy up on stage. He's an old man with a head of white hair. That's me I'm talking about. (laughs) And he appears to be playing. Mm. And he appears to be taking it, you know, he's not being, he's not pulling the rug on himself. He's not snickering up his sleeve. He's not looking at his watch to see how quickly will this end. He's playing his aging heart out. <laughs> and I hope that they have a little part in them that goes, yeah. And the next time they return to play, mm. they don't need this from me, but maybe it will help well if that old guy will get up there and pretend he's a seven year old girl as I do and the girl who forgot to sing badly and he'll get down into that red and white stripy costume and he'll 
pretend to be talking to this person and he'll be that person and he'll do this and he'll have a mouse on his shoulder mm. which isn't there but it is there I hope they go away with a, a greater sense of their own celebration of course they don't and I don't want them to I don't want any child to say I shall now celebrate my ability to play yeah. I just hope it'll seep in somewhere or if someone says to them you know why don't you put your imagination down for a moment and pick up the, the computer yeah I'd love to think, well, you know, that guy didn't have a computer and uh, actually I'm going to continue well, one of the, my box for a while. One of cardboard the box. hallmarks of your performance style is its joyful sense of play and that freedom is uh, is what people respond to because you do look relaxed and things, anything can happen. And that excitement that you bring to the moment is what an audience likes because that is the whole point of, of a theatre. We don't know what's going to happen and anything can happen. And yet it's in a constant sort of procession towards inevitability and these terrible things or these good things or these scary things will happen. So I think that, I mean, having seen you perform for audiences of all sizes and shapes, um, I think what people respond to is the idea that this could all go horribly wrong, that there's great humiliation ahead as well as the potential for joy and happiness. And that's what people laugh at as much as anything. Well, things going wrong is, um, again, another... Uh, kind of uh, in a, an essential part of, I suppose, an actor's training to be prepared for things to go wrong and to not try to make things go wrong, but to, you know, to celebrate failure, certainly in your in your training and your preparation mm. is to try to begin not to fear failure and um, to, you know, celebrate the mistake uh, the clown will thrive on the mistake mm. to the point where, you know, part of the... And I, I don't like to talk too much about clown because I'm not a clown. I'm not a trained clown. Uh, uh, but the bits I've done, um, it's about the fear of getting into the bad place. Mm. There, you can use... Some clown teachers would use the... The word that starts with S and ends with T and has two letters in the middle. And this is a good thing when you get into the le merde. You know, you get into that place. That's when the audience get interested. They look at you. Ha ha, you are in the... And what are you going to do about it? Mm. And the clown will, in, will, will enjoy that moment of being in the mess. Mm. If you can try to develop, you know, you're up there on stage mm -hmm. and if something goes wrong, it's pretty serious. <laughs> like if you forget your lines mm. and there's no one else on stage, that is not funny. That is a dark place to be in with 500 people looking at you. Or if you someone throws you something across the room, and you've rehearsed it for four weeks, a beautiful hat is thrown and you catch it and you put it on your head. But tonight it. You miss it and it sails off into the audience and you're knocked sideways and you're thrown. You're thinking that was not meant to happen. And the audience know that was not meant to be happen. Mm. How you process that failure yeah. is going to influence where the show is going to go in the next 30 seconds and ultimately perhaps for the rest of the night and perhaps the rest of the run. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, how you respond to failure is as in m most walks in life, 
it's a really healthy thing to do yeah. to try to develop a relationship with failure and say, hello, Mr. Mistake. Yeah. I wasn't expecting you today, but while you're here, why don't you sit down, have a cup of tea, kettles on and uh, we'll have a quick chat and then I let you out the back door because I don't want you hanging around. But of course, is, is the uh, it's the great paradox of theatre that we're supposed to be watching prescribed actions that have been rehearsed and fixed and we know what happens in the end of Hamlet but then this thing isn't part of that story is it? It couldn't be is it? And that engagement you know with an audience about how is this going to fit in these elements of as you say failures are are real life intruding and that's what makes the whole journey exciting and and invented. John Wright the English clown teacher uses the technique of finding the game you know there are shows Hamlet Romeo and Juliet say they're happening probably as we speak, somewhere in the world. So why are not all these shows completely identical? The same words, yeah. same amount of actors, same things happen. What makes them different is the approach of the actors and the director and the creative team. Yeah. But just speaking about from the actor's point of view, what makes them different, I would hope, is as an actor, I want to take my lines learn my lines which again is the, the forgotten art mm. learning your lines learn your lines and um, play play with those lines um, play with your fellow actors if you can play with a sense of something might go wrong let's see what goes wrong again I won't you know won't yeah. make things go wrong on purpose or maybe I will if, 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 if the cast are on the same wavelength and are maybe sharing the same techniques, for instance, in this instance of finding the game. So you can have a scene and you say, okay, let's find the game in the scene. Mm -hmm. So you can explode a scene by just letting things happen. Now, by letting things happen, there's a, there's a level of awareness that one can bring to scene work where you respond to absolutely almost anything that might be happening. It might be the sound of people speaking in the room next to you. It might be the sound of an ambulance siren four streets away. Yeah. It might be a fellow actor sneezing and saying, excuse me. If you can incorporate and, or begin to incorporate all these gifts that the world gives us, these little mistakes, these li and they are gifts. Yeah. Uh, the glitch is the gift and these things that if you can latch on to them and just let them lead you down another way, you're still using the same lines that the author has written. But if you in the exercise, in the approach to the scene, you just explode it by saying, I'm going to find the game mm -hmm. to use that word. I don't like find the crack in uh, what will happen if instead of sitting down on the seat like you do in 78% of mm. hamlets that happen around the world what if I I sit in the seat and slip off the seat and fall down and someone has to help me up and we, you know we we and then we and then you're led to another mistake mm -hmm. and if you can follow these mistakes and just explode them as an exercise yeah purely as an exercise you can breathe a whole new energy into a scene and then afterwards you've just created, let's say, a monster of a scene. Like, it's ridiculous. It's a beast. You, you wouldn't put it up in someone unless maybe you're making a clown version of Hamlet or something. But then you go back 
that's finding the game. Then John Wright says, now you hide the game. Right. You hide those moments that you've discovered. And then there's different levels of hiding aspects yeah. of what you're doing. And then it just, it creates an undercurrent of difference yeah. that has happened in this scene. Uh, can I ask you to cast your mind back to the making of Dublin by Lamplight? I mean, what are your sort of salient memories of that process and experience? Uh, I always remember Annie introduced us to the story theatre mm. where you narrate your own story through the day, maybe, and you, you say... It's third, third person. Third yeah, person. Yeah. So you say, he woke up... Uh, and then where did you wake up? He woke up on the floor. And you immediately begin to describe, to go into detail of every moment. Mm. I remember the first time there was, you know, an attic and floorboards. And I suppose when you say something to me, I kind of, I take it on board. Mm -hmm. So I think Annie uses the expression, don't burn your bridges. Burn your steps. Burn your steps. Burn your steps. Uh, I use a phrase, don't jump your fences. Yeah. So, which means, let's say, uh, he put his hand on the door handle. He twisted it, opened the door and stepped into the room. Now, in that instance, I have jumped so many fences. I've jumped the fence of he put his hand. Okay, let's look at that hand right. for a moment. Let's yeah. don't worry about don't the door waste. handle yeah. right now. Yeah. Let's look at that hand. He put his old, gnarled, bony, aching, stinking hand. S oh, it's stinking. Why is it stinking? Yeah. So let's don't get to that handle. Yeah. Why is it stinking? Stinking from the fish he had, you know, personally. OK, there's fish with trawler. I might never open that door. Yeah, yeah. I'll end up in on the high seas in a trawler boat. Yeah. If you're if you're prepared to slow down and go into the detail. So I took to that technique like a fish. Like a fish to water. <laughs> like a newfoundland to yes. the to the Grand Banks. So but that that again is a permission to play it's that you don't to waste anything. That you yeah. look and uh, again, this this is one of the things I find most interesting about work that looks like it's um, based on mime or something like that. It's it's not that's not a, it's it's the invisibility of the the target that makes the the imag imaginative engagement so interesting. That as you say, that hand in the space it doesn't have to do anything. It has an intention. Yeah. It's moving towards a door handle, but. That alone is already interesting, and that you can unpack that back in time, or forward in time in space. If you're in a, if you're in a, a, a rehearsal or a devising or a theatre making area, where maybe there's people around you, so immediately you have an audience. And by that, you have people around you, so you can already possibly become afraid. You be, can become afraid of failure. So especially you step into room. OK, guys, we, we're here for two weeks. We're going to try to come up with a story of, you know, who knows what it is. But let's just come up with a story. Immediately, there's a pressure. Yeah. So and uh, John, would you get up there and just start us off there? Take us through a day. So you get up and you're immediately 
you there's the potential to be afraid of failure so what one might do is okay um, I'm gonna I'm gonna wake up I'm gonna put my hand on the door better open the door better get in a better and there's this rush this your heart rate mm-hmm. increases the little panic sets in and let's just open the door and, and see what's just, in there and it gets worse and worse because yeah. you're trying to feed that beast of narrative coherence you're yeah. trying to go to the end of the yeah, story yeah let's get what's into the room and see maybe I'll come up with something then yeah, yeah. I urge the opposite here's where failure and the embrace of failure immediately mm. is welcome in the room put your hand into the air as you say and if there's no great idea coming in just let it be there just fail just sink in that moment just feel that sinking feeling of I'm lost I'm mm. stuck and then maybe you invite the mistake so you calm down and you give voice to your fear and again this this is a goes to anxiety issues yeah. voice your fears don't hide them or they'll eat you up on the inside yeah you don't hide your fear when you're trying to create theatre or they'll just they'll create this tension which will just freeze you yeah. you know speak your fears say I don't know what I'm doing I really don't know what I'm doing then remember oh the third person thing he really didn't know what he was doing he looked at his hand his hand looked back he felt like a fool mm. He was standing in front of a room of people and they were looking at him, waiting, expecting. And you've already started a narrative that's just from... Once we accept failure, Mm -hmm. we can calm down, technically let the voice out. Yeah. Because what we do is we, we... Again, and that's what I mean by technique. The technique of calming down. Yeah. The technique of breathing the technique of put your hand into the space and the technique of failing Mm. the technique of I don't know what to do to take voice that and just let it out let it out and if if that's as far as you get you know yeah well I think it was a huge um, bomb went off my head when we were experimenting with this this style and uh, and that third person element what was so great about it was that um that freedom by using the third person it's not your problem it's your character's problem as you say so the hand in the space he felt lost yeah or she had forgotten the key suddenly you've created a story that isn't uh, so attached to you or identified with you that your failure is not a personal judgment it's a character's problem and you've created that little gap that you can then inhabit with all of the amazing things that you come up with it's it is funny in those workshops when honey is drumming and all hell is raining I mean that is the most common call of like breathe yeah. breathe, breathe always square off breathe that yeah. I think and that goes back to your fitness and your stamina mm. and I wonder why do as I get older do I learn to relax in order <laughs> because because I'm less fit I have to breathe more I have to slow down more mm. and you know do we stop playing games because we grow older or do we grow older because we stop playing games alas i have to uh, make an exit but it would be lovely to continue this conversation uh, we will we will Louis. it's been a great pleasure talking yeah, to you thank, thank you, you very, very much. much for that yeah very interesting and uh, good luck in the show thank you very much <laughs>